Welcome to the Meb Favor Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hey, everybody. We are coming back after a two-week podcast vacation. Been doing a lot of traveling, but super excited today to be welcoming local friend and longtime market historian and trader, John Bollinger. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Matt. So despite the fact that we both live in the same town in Manhattan Beach, you and I both fairly often are traveling. You do quite a bit of international. Where 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 you been lately? You've been you've been home for the holidays and New Year? You've been on the road? I have been home for the holidays. Um last year oh, I, I don't know, China, Japan, Europe a couple times. You know, there's a lot of interest in my work, so people are um very anxious to meet me and, you know, it, get, it, get the word, so to speak. And historically, that's been a lot in Asia, too, right? I mean, in, in Japan and in China, both? Actually, uh, Asia, there's tremendous interest, not only in, in Bollinger Bands and the related tools mm-hmm. and such like that, but in technical analysis in general. It, Japan has a very long and deep history in technical analysis. And in China, where, you know, Things aren't as clear as they might be because of government ownership of securities and such like that and government control of the markets. You often can't see the traditional fundamental values at work. Uh, technical analysis is, has assumed a sort of primacy amongst investors. You know, and, and I was going to ask this later in the chat, but since it's come up already, you know, I've known you for a long time. And one of the things that's always impressed me is that you have a deep interest in not just research history, but market history and writers and, you know, not just, you look like you read a lot of these academic studies and they'll talk about, you know, momentum and, and reference all the studies in the 90s. But I've been talking to you for years and you'll talk about, you know, looking back to, to one of the true sort of market historians who have kind of been the, the biggest influences on how you think about markets and looking back on kind of the ways that you've developed as both a researcher and money manager in, in general? Well, I think a guy who was uh, at the peak of his career a century ago by the name of Richard D. Wyckoff, probably the most important person, I think, in the history of technical analysis, not just in terms of his impact on me, but he developed many of the concepts that we think about today in terms of implementing modern technical analysis, even in terms of quantitative analysis, this this idea of trying to identify supply and demand, trying to, to identify what sort of actors there are in the markets and what their conflicting motives are. You know, he was thinking about these things at the turn of last century, uh, started chalking, you know, prices up on the board, as as you, you might imagine, but really got into the analytics of it. And eventually founded a school. It's called the Stock Market Institute, and um, edited a magazine for a long time, the um, uh, Wall Street Analyst. But he he was just such a deep thinker that the concepts that he put forward a century ago are still relevant today. And that's often what you get from studying the history of technical analysis. You you find guys who just saw things so clearly and so profoundly that even though the times have changed and the markets have changed and it, dozens of other things have changed, the basic concepts are still viable. And so for someone who's interested in Wyckoff's work, do I remember, did he write some books or are there books about him that would, would you would recommend? What's, what's, the, what's a good starting point there? He wrote one book under a pseudonym. Um, the pseudonym was Rollo Tape. Um, <laughs> following the tape back in those days was a big thing. And the, he wrote three or four more books under his own name. Mm-hmm. But if you can get copies of his magazines, and they're still around in libraries here and there. It's not that hard to find. Many of them have been microwaved, and, and I'm 
Microfilmed, I'm sorry. Probably microwaved um, as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that material is available. Those are fascinating. He wrote in-depth articles, you know, as he was developing his concepts. You get, and you can see how he would work through ideas about how the markets worked and such like that. And that's exactly the same thing that we do today. Obviously, we have different markets, but the process, the analytical process was the same. You know, it's funny because we often talk about a similar thing um, on this podcast, which is, you know, a lot of people talk about value and we say, look, that Ben Graham was talking about that 100 years ago as well. And talk about trend with Charles Dow and a lot of these guys that at least were talking about these things. It's nothing particularly that, you know, a lot of this audience is younger, don't necessarily know that a lot of the concepts have been around for a really long time. And we'll link to the Wyckoff magazine and books in the uh, in the show notes we publish is there anyone else off the top of your head that has there's been a big influence you know over over the years in your thinking well you just mentioned another one charles dow he was sort of the grandfather of trending trend trend following he um you know developed ideas about trend following 120 years ago or or so and um you know his uh the editor of barons which was uh, another paper that he owned at the time Hamilton, William Peter Hamilton, took those ideas and codified them in a, in a long series of editorials um, that basically are the foundations of trend-following investing as it exists today. You know, it's, it's funny because we had taken a look back and said Dow theory, there's a lot of ways to interpret it, but at its simplest kind of is a market going up? And he was looking at the industrials and transports, I believe. And we would say even something if you simply just laid overlaid a moving average on each. And so when they were agreement... They actually had the best performance, you know, when it was mixed, not as good. And they were, they were both in downtrends, the worst. So, so something yeah, exactly. held up so well out of sample over 100 years later. Ex- exactly. In 1930 or so, Robert Ray, um, who was the person who kind of codified um, all of Dow's and Hamilton's work, he suggested you, using the simple 5% filter, just take, mm-hmm. you know, the, the prior highs. And anytime you fall 5% from them, you mark that average as being in a downtrend. You keep track of three or four or five averages, and, and you know when they're all in uptrends, the market's doing well. When they're when they're mixed, the market's going sideways. When they're all in downtrends, well, you know what's happening then too. Yeah, you know it's funny. Keep it simple. Well, before we start bouncing around a little bit more, you know, looking back in history, let's let's take a look at Bollinger's history. You know, you were originally born in Vermont, right? I am, and <laughs> you know, didn't start out in LA as a trader and market historian, right? Do I remember correctly? That's you remember exactly correctly. I was uh, in the camera, bu- I'm sorry, I was in the film business mm-hmm. as a cameraman. I went to the School of Visual Arts in New York and and um, went to apprentice to a cinematographer, which is something I would do again later in the markets apprentice to a very fine cinematographer a guy by the name of david quaid some people will know that name it's sort of a cinematographer cinematographer and spent the first 10 years of my career in the film business which was what moved me from new york to la the sorts of films and the sort of work that i wanted to do there was more of it here than there was in new york so that moved me out here but all along i'd had interest in markets and um my mom was getting ready to retire. She ran a small advertising agency, and um, she asked me. She knew I was interested in stock market stuff like that. She asked me to look after her investments, and I quickly learned how hard that was, and started focusing on 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 ways that I might do that better. And started learning about technical analysis and and such, and, and gradually transitioned from film to the markets. By the time I was oh, about thirty. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if I remember correctly, you started spending a little time on not working the camera, but in front of the camera, the, the predecessor to CNBC. <laughs> what was what was that called? It was the Financial News Network. Okay. Um, it's actually a funny story. There was a, a guy on the radio here in L.A. by the name of Ed Hart. And in five minutes in the morning, he could tell you everything you needed to know for the day about the markets, what what to look at, what stocks to follow, what, what areas were hot, what areas were not. Um, he was just really incredible. The Financial News Network had just started up. It was the first cable network that was ever devoted to the stock market. And they asked him to um, come down and, and, and work with them. And they had asked me about six months prior, and I was very happy doing what I was doing. I was trading options uh, um, at the time 
I turned them down. But when I heard Ed Hart had gone to work for them, I said, well, if it's good enough for Ed, it's good <laughs> enough for me. So I went down and asked the guy if the job was still open, and it still was. They were interested in somebody who could provide some technical content on air, and they had actually some very sophisticated computer systems that they had built up to to analyze the markets. The chairman of the board, a guy by the name of Earl Bryan, had um, written a master's thesis on technical analysis and implemented it on mainframe computers. So there was sort of a, a, a there, there was a liking of technical analysis at the at, at the network that came from the top down. So it was very easy for me to integrate in. And, and I started behind the scenes providing material for other people. And then, um, oddly enough, um, one day um, they were short a person. And the guy came in and said, you go out there. <laughs> and at the time, I was terrible. Um, yeah. I, I was I, I had terrible stage fright. I was stuttering. Can, I mean, can we it was, find some old tapes of this? Are they archived somewhere? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's plenty of embarrassing material around. Uh. But, uh, um, you know, they, they liked what I – they liked the content that I provided. They didn't like my delivery, and they put up with me long enough for me to make the transition to being a fairly smooth uh, um, provider. It, it takes practice. And so uh, would this have been around the same time, or would it have preceded or been in parallel with – when you really started developing Bollinger Bands? Because I know it's been about 30 years, right-ish? Actually, it's coming up on 34. Oh, man. So, But was it around the same time as the team? Actually, I had just developed Bollinger Bands when I went to the Financial News Network and probably in the prior six to eight months. I, I went in 84, and I did the final touches of, of Bollinger Bands as they are today, mm-hmm. Probably 1983 started on them in 1982. You have to remember this was in the era before there were PCs, um, so we had little, little mic- we called them microcomputers, but they're, they're just basically a, a, the predecessor. Of the PC you had to piece them together of cards. You buy memory cards and stuff like that and put them together. But um, I put one of those together, and I had an early spreadsheet program called SuperCalc. I'm sure somebody in the audience will remember that. It was for the old CPM operating system and. I was trading options at the time. And in order to trade options, the one thing you have to have is an estimate of volatility. So I one day I copied the formula for volatility down a column in the spreadsheet and I saw that it was changing over the time. And you know, that doesn't sound very interesting now, but in, in 1982, we believed volatility was a static quantity. It was like a property, like the wall is white or the car is blue. Mm-hmm. You know, IBM's, volati- IBM's beta is 1.2, mm-hmm. that, that sort of thing. And uh, it was just about then um, that Robert Engel was doing his work, which he, he did eventually get the Nobel Prize for his work on the fact that volatility was, was volatile. So it was in the air, that, 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 that sort of idea. And I had a trading system that I was using that used fixed parameters. And you're constantly having to readjust them. It was a nightmare. And every time you readjust them, you'd let motions into the marketplace. If you're bullish, you'd adjust them so it looked bullish. Mm-hmm. If you're bearish, you'd adjust mm-hmm. them so it looked bearish. I was looking for some way to automate that process. And, and seeing volatility change, I said, maybe I can use volatility. And that was the genesis of Bollinger Bands. And, and so the, the quick definition of what they are for people, if there's someone who's been in a closet that's listening to this podcast, and what, what's the quick definition of Bollinger Bands and the quick um, overview, kind of in your opinion, from the creator of the best way to, to use them? So uh, um, Bollinger Bands are just a type of trading bands. All trading bands are more or less the same in their concept. They provide a relative definition of what's high and low. If you're near the upper band, prices are relatively high. If you're near the lower band, prices are relatively low. Bollinger Bands are a sort of trading band that's driven by volatility. That was my contribution to the to the process and so they're automated. You don't have to adjust them. You don't have to change them. You don't have to maintain them. As the market che- regi- regime changes, the Bollinger Bands change. They tighten. They expand. Um, they're driven by a middle band. There's three lines, upper, middle, and lower. Mm-hmm. Um, so the middle band is a moving average. So if stocks are trending up, the bands are rising. If stocks are trending down, the bands are falling. And they, they provide that key definition of whether prices are relatively high or relatively low. And you can use that to assemble all sorts of trading approaches. Um, you can use them in pattern recognition to try to rigorously define W bottoms or M-type tops. Um, you can use them to 
you know, identify oversold and overbought opportunities. Um, you can use them in trend following method, methods or, you know, you can, in congestion range markets, you can use them as buy and sell levels to reverse to the other side of the range. One of the beauties of publishing like you have for so long, you also have to be one of the longest continual newsletter writers, right? Your, your capital growth, rather. When did you start that? In the 80s as well? Actually, it started in 87, a not wow. an auspicious year. <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends. You may have started in November or earlier in the year. But but so you've been writing for a long time. And one of the beauties of writing, and in, and John also does a lot of speeches around the world and videos, uh, many videos that are probably people have seen, DVDs, a bunch of websites, Bollinger Bands, um, and, and a whole book on the topic, Bollinger on Bollinger Bands. But one of the cool things about publishing is other people – taking your work and kind of running with it. What have you, what have you seen as kind of some in, innovative or interesting ways that people have kind of built upon it and used it in ways you might not have even considered over the years? And have you incorporated in any of those methods? And So I was like one of the original open source guys. When I, when I developed the bands, I immediately put them out in, in, in the public domain and um, allowed other people to share the formulation with them and allowed other people to use them to incorporate them into their software and into their platforms. And, and the benefit of that is astonishing because over the years, people will come to you and they say, look, I've taken your work and I've done these fantastic things with it. Um, I remember the first time that it really occurred to me what a treasure trove this, this, this sort of additional information was, was in Hong Kong many, many years ago. A Chinese guy who was running um, some active uh, trading approaches inside a hedge fund was using Bollinger Bands on the equity curves of the different approaches to allocate funds between the approaches. Hmm. If, a, if, if, if the... If the equity curve were trending up toward the upper Bollinger Band, he would take money away from it and put money into a system that was trending down toward the lower Bollinger Band. So he used it to allocate funds within a fund. I, it was just amazing. Which is funny because it's the exact opposite what we've seen in the literature of what most individuals and institutions wanted to, which is put put money into the funds that are doing well and take money into the take money out of the performance well, chase, right? Well, you know, Humphrey Neal, the the founder of Contrarian Opinion, said you should do the opposite, and um, I found out in my career more often than not that he was correct. And, and so any um, any kind of general, having been working with these for 30 years, any general uh, ways that you're thinking has changed on on, uh, on using them in general? Is there any major kind of takeaways you, that you use now that you wouldn't have maybe 30 years ago? Well, the first thing is they have the bands themselves haven't changed. They've withstood the test of time. The basic idea turned out to be a pr first principles sort of idea, mm -hmm. a robust idea that's uh, as usable today as it was um, when I developed them. I've added some extra indicators uh, over the years that are related to them, but other than that, they haven't changed very much. In terms of my approach to using them, the very first system that I built to use the bands, or the uh, actually the system existed before the bands, the very first system I modified to use the bands, I still use today. No so, so, so some things um, some things have stood the te test of time. Some things haven't stood the test of time because market dynamics have changed a lot. I think years ago it was a much simpler proposition, uh, especially when trading individual stocks, to simply try to sell the upper bin and try to buy the lower bin. I think. The, the, the sort of success rate of that was much higher years ago. And I, th I think you just you need to be more um, sophisticated. You, you have to bring a little bit more to the party these days. You have to add you know, some supply-demand information or some, some market trend information or some group and sector information. You have to add a little bit more if you want to be a, a, as... That, that is a perfect lead-in to kind of the next topic that... I would like to talk about. And, you know, so many investors in our world are severely what I like to call siloed. You know, they say, mate, look, I'm a, I'm a dividend guy or I'm a pure trend follower. And, and that's fine. There's, I think there's many approaches and markets that work. And, you know, if people find the one that, that they're attracted to, 
God bless them. Um, but one of the things you're known for is an investing concept that is is probably considered to be um, accepted today, but may not have been necessarily the time, which is kind of combining this juncture overlap between technical analysis, which is study of price trends, supply and demand, but also fundamental analysis, and which um, you called rational analysis, which makes so much sense. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. How do you kind of arrive at um, putting those and, and by the way, John has to be one of the first CFAs, CMTs. There can't be too many of y'all around, right? <laughs> no, no, there's actually a lot of us now, but I am the first. First ever? I'm the first ever by simple default. <laughs> um, the When they gave the first CMT exam, that's Chartered Market yeah. Technician, I was the only CFA that took it. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. That's awesome. That's a really cool um, piece of trivia. I didn't know that. So. There's got to be more now just because there's so many CFAs. But um, for a lot of people, it's it's kind of like holding two very different beliefs in their head, you know. And so the, the prospect of using fundamentals and technicals, it's a little more accepted now. But but so how did you kind of come around to that way of thinking? Was it, um, And maybe talk a little bit about it, about how you possibly use the two of those together in investing approaches? Well, first, it doesn't have to lead to cognitive dissonance. Um, these things can be complementary. They don't have to fight with one another. Um, you know, I started um, the way that most people do, taking brokerage research and trying to make mon- money out of that, uh, stock tips from, bro- you know, brokerage mm-hmm. house and stuff like that. Obviously, that doesn't work. Um, didn't work then, doesn't work now, ta, ta, ta. And then I shifted to technical analysis. But I was always impressed by, back in the day, stock quotes were very hard to come by. It was very expensive. You get, if you wanted quotes in your home, you got this thing that was the size of a refrigerator, um, had to have plumbing you know, to keep it cool. It was crazy. Um, so most people were involved in the markets would go to a brokerage firm, and brokerage firms would give active traders desks, just give them to you. You know, and obviously you had to generate commissions to, to get one. So the idea was that I would look at this, the, 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 the firm that gave me a desk was firm that no longer exists called A.G. Becker. And they had really terrific research. I mean, really terrific research, both fundamental research and technical research, which was very unusual for Mm. a firm in those days. Mm -hmm. And I would look at it and I I would just go, you know, all of this is pretty good. Um, And if you put the pieces together, it's even better. Um, They had a woman there by the name of Elaine Garzarelli who did a a great group and sector product. They had... uh, uh, a guy by the name of Roy Bloomberg who did a great technical analysis and options product, and it had a number of great fundamental analysts. So if you could put all those parts and pieces together, you could actually gain an edge. So that's the the, the juncture of that idea. Today, you know, there's not it's not just technical analysis and fundamental analysis. Today, we've got four parts to the puzzle, right? Mm-hmm. There's quantitative analysis, behavior, behavioral finance technical analysis and fundamental analysis. So you can, take, you can steal from all all those different disciplines, take little pieces that work and combine them into, into an approach that works better than any single one of those approaches individually. And, and, and so how do you, kind of your process, how do you decide from which toolkit to draw? How do you put it all together? Is Do you have a systematic way about it? Or what's 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 kind of the combination? How do you, how do you go about it? So... Um, the thing that you know that I like the most, um, or the things that I like the most, are like group and sector analysis. Mm-hmm. I think this is a very powerful concept. Most mm-hmm. people would regard that as as some form of fundamental analysis. Mm-hmm. I don't actually know how it should be labeled, but I combine that with with technicals, with 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 momentum and such. I'm I'm very interested in growth. I think there are times when the market values growth very highly. There are times when the market discounts growth. So that rotation between styles, between growth and value, between large cap and small cap and such like that, that's a very big piece of my uh, process. Today, that would be called quantitative analysis. Back in the day, it was called technical analysis. Mm -hmm. So that there's an interesting idea there is that, you know, the these pieces have been shuffled around over the years. Different groups have claimed different pieces. Much of what we know as behavioral finance today came from Kahneman 
and Traversky um, from, from their pioneering work. But a lot of it came from the work of a guy by the name of Humphrey Neal, who was another Vermonter, hmm. right? They called him the Vermont Ruminator. <laughs> and he developed this whole idea, contrary opinion, that the crowd could be wrong, that, that people would go to excess and, and that, that, you know, there were times when you should when you should be in tune with the crowd and follow the trends. Mm. And there were times when you absolutely should not mm. and you should go the other way. So, you know, the history of of people making, you know, efforts at an analysis in this market is is littered with I, people who combine these ideas. It's nothing that I came up with. It's a, it's an idea, you know, that has tremendous depth uh, um, in terms of history. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a scenario we, we often talk about that my favorite type of investment is on, on the, if you were to distill it down to the two most simplest would be something that's cheap and entering an uptrend. If I had to pick one thing and it's interesting because that's not the way the world has looked on kind of a country or sector level for a while, but it seems to have been changing in the f past few months where a lot of what you would assume would be the cheaper sectors, industries, countries have really started having great performance over the past six months. But for the prior years, I mean, the U.S. has been the number one stock, the number one stock performer since the bottom of the crisis. And the cheap stuff has just gotten cheaper. But that's what creates opportunity. What, what, where are you kind of seeing opportunity now in the, in the groups and sectors? Is it so? Um, you, just to hook back sure, into that sure. for a second, there's this guy by the name of Bukowski. You know, he devoted the best uh, best part of a book to, to, to exploring exactly those kinds of ideas. I think they're they're really fan, fantastic what, ideas. What's, what's the book? Do you know what works on Wall Street? Mm. We'll get back to books in a, in a little bit. So, is there is it what what uh. I don't know if you can share this or not, but is there anywhere like in, in kind of your research that you're seeing opportunity now? Any any groups, any sectors off the top of your head? Well, in the short to intermediate term, uh, um, telecom. Which, which, by the way, sorry, it's, it's, that's a terrible question to ask. And one, one of the worst things about TV is, you know, there's there's no time frame. And you actually had a good quote, not to interrupt you, um, in one of your pieces talking about time frame confusion. You know, where, where people will look at a shorter term chart, but be trading on a longer term time horizon or be trading on a time, longer term time horizon and, and but only looking at short term charts. So so that so. comes from a whole idea I did about task analysis. Mm -hmm. Right. There are certain things that we need to we, we need to 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 attach our analytical tasks to, to the appropriate time frames. Um, long term is our background. It's what's happening in the world. It's you know, is money supply growing? Um, you know, are we in a secular economic uptrend? That that sort of thing. Intermediate term is this sort of stuff we've been talking about: um, growth versus value. Um, what groups and sectors are doing well? What groups and sectors are doing poorly? What countries are are are, are uptrending? What countries? Are downtrending all that, and short term is really only for execution. Mm -hmm. And and the classic mistake that people make is they make a decision in the intermediate term. They say, "Well, I like France, and inside France, I like the technology stocks. I mean, they, they, all the parts and pieces are fit, fitting together." So they they go to the short term to to execute um, and, and and get their positions and stuff like that, tick charts and all that stuff, looking at quotes, and and they get their positions and they don't revert back to the intermediate term to analyze them. They just watch it go tick, 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 tick. And of course, when something's going tick, 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 it goes tick, 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 tick against you mm -hmm. and you're flushed out and you walk away. But you, we had no reason to be flushed out because your reasons from the intermediate term were still valid. So you should, should have held on to that position. So people have this time frame confusion that I think does a huge amount of damage. And we, we see that not just with trading, but also investing, where so many people will come to me or having conversations with, say they have a long-term investing horizon or plan, and then will often really operate on their emotions and psychology on the time frame of weeks and months. Uh -huh. And, and you know, that that, like you mentioned, becomes the biggest problem on... Uh, you know, getting caught up in the emotions, but really losing sight of of the long term. The three hundred pound gorilla that's sitting in the corner is is wearing a sign that says "discipline." That's Jeff, by the way, for the podcast listeners. Jeff's in the corner. Just kidding. I wish Jeff was in here right now because he loves trading options, and um, he would he would love to hear some of this. Yeah, discipline is is the hardest part. So um, so along with the, the trading, there's you know, I know you've talked a lot historically about position sizing and and what's your opinion on 
say stop losses or how to exit trades? What's what's your in general approach to once once you put on a trade? Um, is it a defined exit? What what's what's your opinion? So many parts and pieces there. Um, first of all, if I had you know for for the typical person who's an active investor and or trader, there's no question in my mind that the greatest thing that is neglected is position sizing. Okay, you've got an idea. How much do you put to work? And and you need to have a way to quantify that. You, you can go to Ralph Vince's work if, if you want, or uh, there are any number of other people who have written on the topic. Um, I don't think it really matters that much which of the approaches you use, as long as you use one. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, as long as you have a rational idea. Because the problem is, here, here's how the problem typically works out. Um, you have um, a, a very elegant approach to the markets. It generates, say, 17% a year on average with mm-hmm. a relatively small deviation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, you need to know how much of your capital to commit to that. The problem is, is that um, there's an, th- there is, in fact, a mathematically optimal amount say mm-hmm. 7% or 10 or 15 or 20, whatever it is, that, that you should commit to that approach. The problem is, is that on the downside, it doesn't matter that much. You just earn a little bit less. So if, if the optimal position size is 15% and you're at 13% or 12% or 11%, you're just going to earn a little bit less. You're going to give up a little bit of your edge. The problem is on the other side. At 16%, you're going to earn a lot less. And at 17%, you're going to earn even more or less. And that curve goes down really steeply, mm. right? So the problem is betting too large, um, not betting too small. Betting too small, you give up some of the edge that you've developed. You, you're not going to make as much money as you should. But if you're, if, you're on, if you're over the peak of that curve, if you're betting too large um, for your win-loss ratio for you, for your system dynamics, the risk of ruin rises abruptly. Mm. Um, and that's something I don't think that people and, realize. And the interesting thing about this too is that that's assuming you actually can can quantify the worst-case scenario. And a lot of times the, the classic trading phrase is, your worst drawdown is always in your future. So for you know for a game like blackjack, it's it's probably easy to quantify the correct betting size. But in investment markets, it's a little harder. And this is, I mean, believe and that's me, why I said it doesn't really yeah. matter what approach you right. use, as long as you use some approach, so you have an idea of where that peak is, and you can you know assure that you're on this side of the peak, the safe side of the peak, not the dangerous side of the peak. You know, it's it's um, hard to kind of describe this and the, the younger investors listening to this that haven't had that really painful trade. You know, I learned this lesson a couple times in my early 20s trading, blowing up an entire account to where, you know, with that same thing, taking way too much risk on on one investment. And you learn that lesson once, you know, you um, you feel the very real visceral pain of losing money and it colors you for forever. And so, but you see this take place um, in echoes where people who haven't had that, and the probably worst thing that could ever happen to a young trader is a string of successful trades. That's correct. <laughs> that's, a, that, that's absolutely correct. Especially if they're their first, second, third, and fourth trades. Yeah. And that's, a, but that's why I became a quant is said, you know, oh my God, I clearly, uh, you know, have no idea how to position size or how to place these bets. And so um, it's something that, you know, drove me into quantitative analysis because of of the uh, too much risk. But we see it all the time. I mean, I even had a young lady from Australia email me today and she says, hey, man, but, you know, I invest this, that and the other. But I just really hate drawdowns. And I said, well, look, you should probably be happily sitting CDs and just move on. You know, you should be in very short term bonds and just be happy with it. Or, you know, say maybe half in cash. But the worst case scenario for that type of person is taking on too much risk. And and for the younger generation who for right now, for the past eight years, has never seen a bear market in the U.S., you know, the expectations start to get out of line. So we always tell people to try to err on the side of caution, try to look for what would be optimal and then kind of back away a little bit. So I run a little open source um, um, 
project. Um, mm-hmm. It's a it's a Python. It's written in the Python programming language, and what is what it does is it takes uh, your trading stats, whether they can be long term, short term, it, it doesn't matter, mm-hmm. and it visualizes them for you so that, so that you can see them. Probably has a a, a dozen different. Um, um, graphing styles, but, and it really lets you see the dynamics of the, of the decisions that you're making and what they look like. And one of them that's really interesting that people find totally counterintuitive, but once they've seen it, they never forget it, is called regret. Um, and this is simply the amount of time that you spend in drawdown, the percentage of the time you are in drawdown. Right. And people, people, if you intuitively ask them, how much, how much of the time are you in regret? They say, oh, maybe 10, 15% of the time. It's like 80, 90% yeah. of the time for most people. Because the, the number of days that you are making new highs on your equity curve, those are the only days in which you're not in drawdown. Mm-hmm. There's, right. there's all, so, you know, we, we actually wrote a post on this, not on the trading, but applied to the broad indices called something like, to be a good investor, you have to be a good loser. And it was looking, I think, even at the S&P. And it says there's only two possible states, all-time higher drawdown, nothing in between. And if I, and I may get this wrong, I'll post it in the show notes, but I think the S&P was like 60 or 70% of the time in a drawdown, right? Like you're Oh, it's got to be higher than that. Yeah, all-time high is is a kind of a rare event. And so Because even if you make an all-time high, tomorrow you're down, to, right. you know, down a tick, and yeah. that's a drawdown day. And, and that's hard right? for people. It's, you know? it's very hard for people, and that's why we did System View, mm-hmm. um, so that you could just take your, your trading stats and, and, and plug them in, and it'll graph them out, and you can see this stuff. And, this, you know, it's, it's so enlightening. When people – the first time people see it, they go it, – it's, it's like somebody turned the lights on in, in, in the room. Mm-hmm. And, and can this be accessed through the Bollinger Band's website? No, it's on GitHub. GitHub. All right. Well, we'll post a link if we can find it. But the, By the way, listeners, there's a – Massive amount of research is on Bollinger Band's website. I assume if you're probably like me and just looking at the website, I imagine the vast majority of the tools which you built on the website, which is a lot, um, I imagine a lot of those you built for yourself because there was nothing else out there. The, it, actually, we have several websites. Um, um, the the big analytical one is the same title as my book, Bollinger on Bollinger Bands. It's got a short name. Um, bbands.com mm-hmm. but that was totally built um to allow me to trade mm-hmm. um that and you know it it's sister site is a, a group and sector mm-hmm. analytical site mm-hmm. those two sites were a hundred percent built to allow me to trade and you know it, actually you were touching on this before when you asked me about my newsletter i write my newsletter for myself it's a discipline it's a I don't write it for other people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, every month I have to sit down and I have to to do that. It takes me a week, um, and um, it's when I do my deepest thinking. It's when I do, you know, when I'm forced to put all everything together and make it in black and white. And you're now publishing on Wednesdays, I think, right? Uh, yeah, because <laughs> originally it was on like for weekend delivery. Do you even mail it anymore? Or is it just electronic? No, just electronic. Yeah, the world's no changing. No more paper. Yeah, no. I mean, so it, it's funny because um, the the reason that I started writing on the blog years ago, similar to what you were talking about, was it was was to try to find feedback on a couple ideas and very just rudimentary ideas that I couldn't couldn't find you know being a quant kind of being um you know the sitting in the corner in a dark room not having the interaction or the resources said hey look who else is thinking about this and, and publishing ended up same sort of thing ended up having to build it on your own but you got a lot of the feedback and that to me has been a much better resource but the writing certainly i think is is a wonderful process to try to really learn what what you think you know that feedback process is so important when i started um it was very hard um no internet, obviously, or mm-hmm. anything like that. Um, so it was very hard to find other people you could talk to and, and, and such like that, especially being out here on the West Coast, away from the financial centers mm-hmm. um, and such. Although we had a vibrant financial center here, center here in, in L.A. at the time. Uh, it was still hard to find people. And, and, and books, uh, you know, there was a guy by the name of Needham. He ran a company called Needham Book Finders. And you'd call him up and you'd say, oh, I want a copy of Robert Ray's The Dow Theory. And he'd say, Fine. 
you know, I'll give you a call in a couple of weeks. And, you know, he'd call you back and he'd say, pick it up at this antique store. And, you know, you'd go, you, you know it's like rem- sort of like buying drugs. You, you know, know what this reminds me of? So I just forgot about this is that I used, listeners, I used to go over and with Pastor John because there was, um, he had archived, some would call it hoarding, maybe your wife would call it hoarding, archived <laughs> Barron's magazines for, I mean, how long do you have them? Do you still have them? Nope. What? What did you do with them? I can. I gave them to the MTA library. Okay, so good. I thought you were going to say use them as, as kindling no, and firewood. No, 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 no. But no. I had a number of models that I built off Nelson's Freeberg work that, that were data series that had only, in my, to my knowledge, only existed in Barron's and uh, John had many, many years, so I, I spent a, a handful of days in a in a storage room uh, writing down all the all the data from from John's Barons. I still keep a um, I still keep a big database from mm-hmm. Barons. Each week, I enter a whole bunch of numbers out of Barons. Very useful. And I remember Ra- Ralph Vince used to keep a good spreadsheet there. And there's a lot of ideas that I think uh, are, are on kind of that econometric rational analysis time series that I think are really fascinating. That there's a handful of other people that do some similar work there too, but um, is an area I used to spend so much time in. Uh, Fosback was a great book back in the day. Uh, Stock market logic. Fosback was a terrific guy. I mean, he was a really deep thinker, and he did a, a, an incredible, incredible work. And so, and so what, while we're on the topic of, of writing and books, and, and by the way, you probably know this, but my first white paper was actually written to avoid taking the CMT level three <laughs> was the only reason I wrote it is because they were getting rid of the paper requirement and said, Oh my God, I don't want to take the test. And so I actually wrote, I had never written a paper before and wrote a paper and, and long, that's, that's actually going to be 10 years, um, anniversary, I think this month. Anyway, um, let's talk about books for a second. Cause you were a big market historian and, and kind of thinking, and who are some other, uh, books that, Younger investors may not know about, or books that you maybe have most gifted to people other than Bull and Drum, Bull and Bands, but some really good books that have been influential to you. Um, any other ideas off the top of your head? So there was a, a statistician at, at GE by the name Arthur A. Merrill, um, and he retired at sixty-five, as you know, was the way in those days. And he started the second career as a market technician, um, and. He is wrote so concisely and beautifully. It was astonishing. So anything you can find by Arthur Merrill, um, very, you know, it, it's sort of hard to find, but it's in the libraries. It's about um, any of his work um, is really terrific just to, to see how his, how his mind worked and how he thought about, about markets. An, another, you know, sort of more contemporary guy um, is a fund manager by the name of Martin Zweig. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a um, couple of books, Winning on Wall Street mm-hmm. and um, Winning with the New Iras, I mm-hmm. think it yeah, was. Yeah, um, it's sitting on the shelf in my brother's house. I remember that book. Yeah, yeah. So those books are ch- chock full of interesting ideas. Um, when you think about some more, we can we can talk about it. Let me know. There's those are some great ones. The um, I was I was going to jokingly when you said that. Interestingly, think about Los Angeles. I said we're going to in the next couple of months host a, some sort of fintech happy hour meetup. So we'll let you know uh, whenever that's going to be. And listeners, if you find yourself in LA, we'll we'll uh, post it post it publicly. Um, you know, so and so along the books, you know, you have a lot of resources on the website. Any other outside? Tools, website, technical analysis, software, things that you use that are think are particularly useful? Or is it all just custom built, coded up by JB? I do some coding, mm-hmm. um, but really only when there's no alternative. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to code. It's, it's uh, um, um, you know, it's a nice discipline. It's, a, it, it's, it's it, I think it, it's actually good for you. It makes you think in a, in, in, mm-hmm. in a, in a sort of interesting way um but uh, i don't think that that it's really essential anymore there's such powerful tools available if you're a quant type like yourself um r um the the statistical language r has built a huge thriving community um around r and finance um and you know very helpful people um 
So, is it where do people is there, is there like a central hub for that? Is it is it a place you can go, or is it there's just a kind of- um, there's a, a group in Chicago um, actually called R and Finance. Mm-hmm. They have a website. Mm-hmm. Um, um, that's a great starter starting place um, for that. They're very friendly, very nice, very very helpful. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, so, that's, so that's, a, that's, that's the good that's news about the internet these days. You can almost find any type. I mean, R is way above my pay grade. I do as little coding as possible. I think I tapped out on my coding at, at C++ my freshman year in college. But there's a lot of communities built around basically anything. You know, we there's some zero for hedge funds, value investing club for those guys, the bogleheads who tend to be um, pleasantly insane about, you know, the, the Vanguard uh, investing. Um, and then there's a lot of quant finance Quantopian is a newer one on kind of writing up the algorithm. So there's a lot that we can find out there. Um, uh, one of the my favorite things to do when I'm talking to people is I'll go grab their Twitter stream and you can sort them. There's a really terrible design website, but it works. Only one that I know of called Fastar. And you can sort people's tweets by the most popular. And so we, we took a look at John's and I'm, I'm going to read what it seems you're Top five all most popular tweets revolved around Bitcoin. <laughs> you know that's that's that, that's just an accident. I, I'm a I'm very interested in Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, uh, no question about that. But I happened to early on when I first started on Twitter, mm-hmm. one of the first tweets I, I ever saw was about Bitcoin. And there's a huge Bitcoin mm-hmm. community on Twitter. I don't mm-hmm. know why. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an, another huge Bitcoin community on Reddit as well, mm-hmm. um, but I just I just fell into them, and you know they're sort of kindred spirits. Um, so I I, um, I I random tweets about Bitcoin. So so, so, so tell me, do you think <laughs> one, have you ever owned or traded Bitcoin, or two, do you think it's actually uh, you know the same rules apply? Do you think that Bollinger Bands can work on on Bitcoin? Bollinger Bands work fantastic on Bitcoin, um, and and they work fantastic on 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 all forex. Yeah, I was um, going to say currency traders in general. One tend towards lean towards technical analysis in general, but but often I you hear it in the circles and the vernacular love using. So there's a reason for that. Um, currency trading is pairs trading. Mm-hmm. You're you're long one and short the other uh, essentially. So um, sometimes you're you're you know you, you you find a stock you like and a stock you hate and you pair them together and that's a pair. Their portfolios full of pairs trading. Um, the idea is to earn a, a return at reduced volatility over time. Take mm-hmm. take out the market factor mm-hmm. and, and just capture the the sweetness of, of your ideas. Um, but so forex is pairs trading, and pairs have a ha, have a statistical property. They're stationary, um, or they exhibit in the, in, this, in statistical parlance stationarity. Mm. So. Um, and it just turns out that Bollinger Bands um, and any approach like Bollinger Bands um, work just a little bit better with with series that exhibit stationarity. Mm. So it's uh, this sort of a built-in edge to using Bollinger Bands on anything that's a pair. That's fascinating. You know, Bitcoin it, and you can create pairs, right? I mm-hmm. mean, you you can you can you know. Uh, um, you can be long IJR and short SPY, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you can you can create all sorts of pairs and then <laughs> analyze analyze those ratios using Bollinger Bands, and you'll find that there's tremendous value there. I was listening to I remember Gunlock, and sometimes pairs make sense to me, and sometimes they don't. I remember listening to Gunlock talk about a pair trade once, and what was it? It was like long apple, short gold, or something vice versa. And I was like, what in the world do those two things have to do with each other? I have no idea. But pairs trading is an interesting area. But Bitcoin is fascinating to me. I've been cheering. I think it's a, it's a very interesting diversion. I've never owned one. I don't trade it. I, I, but I, it's a very pleasant distraction. So we're just coming up on the point where they, where Bitcoin's really going to get tradable. We're going to get a Bitcoin ETF pretty soon, oh. and that'll be, you know, that that'll be liquid and in and out, you know, for for low commissions and low spreads and blah blah blah. And um, um, I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, is all I can say. I think it'll be. 
I think it'd be a great trading. It's, it's surrounded by so many interesting stories. I mean, the whole Silk Road story that um, <laughs> it's just, and we'll link to it in the bio. If you've never heard of Silk Road listeners, uh, there's a great Wired story. I think it's becoming a movie now, straight out of some, you know, uh, science fiction. But um, Silk Road used to be a, a, a marketplace where you could buy and sell anything, but Bitcoin was kind of the perfect currency to do that. Um, and then I, the founder eventually ended up getting arrested because he was trying to put on hits on people while making tens of millions of dollars each month working from a cafe or like a library. So that was the founder of um, Silk Road, Silk Road right, not right. the founder of Bitcoin. Oh, do we, do we, is, is there, is, does Bitcoin have a, um, yeah, a there is acknowledged a found, founder now? There, there is a founder, you know, nobody really, you know, yeah. nobody really knows who he is, but yeah. he was, he will put it this way. He was a heck of a coder. Yeah. I mean, I, I, He's supposedly a Japanese guy. I mean, we'll leave it at that. I, I used to joke. I said, <laughs> I, 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 I wouldn't be surprised. I would love to hear one day that it turns out that it was the CIA that developed Bitcoin as a way to train. I mean, you say you can't track it, but to, to be able to see what's going on with the shady money scenarios. Who knows? I that don't makes know. sense to me. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, you know, I put it up as a subscription option on the idea farm um, for a while and no one subscribed. I mean, despite being, you know, in kind of a younger tech crowd in Los Angeles, um, I don't really know many friends that use it. But then I go to other countries. I mean, I remember I was down in Mexico and was chatting with a fellow who has a bunch of Bitcoin ATMs. You know, and that was his business was putting out Bitcoin ATMs. So Bitcoin, who, who Bitcoin's knows? clearly more popular outside of the States than yeah. it is inside the States. Um and, you know, it's sort of understandable because if you've had currency problems in your life, um, then the idea of an alternative currency gets much more appealing. And it's, you know, for someone who travels a lot, I'm sure you see this, you know, we've seen it a lot. In the U.S., most most investors don't traditionally think that much about currencies, you know, being the reserve currency, uh, but also the world's biggest economy. Most investors and individuals, the only time they think of currencies is, hey, it's a great time to go skiing in Canada now. It's a great time to go down to Mexico or vice versa when the U.S. dollar is, is doing poorly. But almost every conversation you have with an international investor is just littered with currency, you know, exposure or ideas. And, you know, a lot of that has to do with many foreign and emerging currencies, you know, can go through periods of huge volatility and drawdowns and everything, everything else in, involved. Well, and, you know, we've had the advantage of being able to lend and borrow in our own currency because we've had the reserve currency mm -hmm. um, for so long. Um, you know, most most other people in the world have never experienced anything like that. So we have a certain, um, you know, we, we perceive the dollar um, in, in a way which, frankly, most international investors simply cannot comprehend because mm -hmm. they, they, they've never had that. So, yeah, you're, you're right. Once you get outside of the States, Forex, the, the exchange rate is a huge part of every decision. You know, in, in, in I assume you trade current. I mean, you trade pretty much everything, right? Stocks, currencies. Is, is that accurate or is that not accurate? Yeah. yeah okay. Pretty, pretty <laughs> What's, much. All right. Actually, what I mostly trade is volatility. Oh, there's... interesting. Man, we're, I mean, we're, we're getting late into the podcast <laughs> for that, but that is a wonderful rabbit hole to start to go down. I mean, what, what's what's your general... So when you're trading volatility, is it expressed through options or are you trading volatility funds? Are you... What what are you doing? What's the... So I'm really interested in, in all the VIX derivatives that we have now. Um, the, I, I think they offer you know really interesting uh, opportunities. I, th I think the thing about volatility is not so much how you trade it or, or what you trade. There's many different ways to to go after that. Options is how I learned it, um, but I don't really do that anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, the interesting thing about volatility for me is how misunderstood it is. Uh, the academic view. Go on. Go on. <laughs> well, the academic view of volatility it, it just doesn't fit the facts in the marketplace. And since most people are trying to trade it from the academic view, that creates tremendous opportunities if you're willing to to sort of look outside the box and, and, and take a take an individual approach to it. So I, I think I just think there's tremendous opportunity in volatility today um, and I don't think that's going to be armed away anymore because the academy is so attached 
to its view of volatility. And they pounded into all the finance students. Everybody comes out with those views. And, you know, it's almost it's sort of a universal truth and it mm. just doesn't fit the facts. Mm. I mean, they're nice theories uh, um, and, and all that, but they don't fit the facts that we see in the marketplace. Interesting. Um, I, I feel like we're going to have to have you on back on in like six months to really go down that rabbit hole. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, we'll be here for three hours. Um, let's start to wind down and do quick, a couple quick questions um, that we start to ask everyone. What's, and, and these two I didn't ask John ahead of time, so we're putting him on the spot a little bit. Uh-oh. Most memorable trade. So they, they tell a story in Chicago. Um, there's a god with a small G that runs the pits, and, and, and he says that he has uh, three rules, and um, he enforces those rules mercilessly. So um, you're allowed to buy the bottom tick once in your lifetime. You're allowed to sell the top tick once in your lifetime. Of course, you're free to do the opposite as often as you would like. I once sold the very top tick. It was a, um, it was a, a stock called Home Shopping Network, and mm -hmm. I, I shorted it um, at the all-time high print. Well, so that's good that you at least know that you've used up that bullet. So that's right. You're that's like, right. I'm done shorting. So, I'm I, no longer... so I have one I have one more opportunity, you know, sometime in, in, in the next decade or so, I'll have to find an opportunity to buy the bottom tick. I've, I've never even gotten close to doing that. Um, but I, it just it was happenstance. It was not skill or anything like that. I just never is, just right? happened to be in the right place at the right time with the right idea and got yeah. it. That's that's funny. That that's it's the way that it works. Um, do you have a memorable worst trade? Yeah, um, I, I absolutely have a, a memorable worst trade. Um, I um, was pretty active in the CMO markets. Um, those would be collateralized mortgage op obligations um, when they um, when that market blew up. Um, so that was um, that, that. That was a series of um, really, really awful trades. They all worked out in the end. Mm -hmm. um, this was before there was credit risk involved in these securities, but these were government securities and such like that. So there was no credit risk. So, in fact, they all worked out in the end, and 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 we were eventually made whole. But. Um, um, there was some really hard going for a while. <laughs> the, uh, it, for some reason, I don't know why this popped into my head. It reminds me of um, going back to your idea on losing was that the um, concept of trading systems and designing in kind of whatever you want. And, and it just uh, this has nothing to do with what you just said, really. But it's uh, you could design a trading system. Um, that's not particularly profitable, but has a 90 some percent win rate, which is uh, to buy a security and exit on the first profitable trade. You know, uh -huh. and that has like a 90. If you want a great exit and want them to be certain, but so your numbers a, are all drawdown in one right, tiny right. So, little profit. Well, the tick. one that's the one that's in a drawdown, this is probably a great newsletter, you know, usage um, for the, the little bit of the sketchier ones. You could have like a 97 percent win rate. By just never closing out the losing trade. <laughs> so, um, you know, there are people who actually do this. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's, it, it's as fantastic as it seems. I actually know somebody who does yeah. this. No, I mean, look, there's, there's even many legitimate ways. We were talking about this with, with some friends about the, you know, even in the investment side, um, there's plenty of legitimate ways to build track records that, you know, are, are, accurate but not necessarily ethical right and this goes on the newsletter where it goes on everywhere but there's um uh you know as always buyer beware again going down a whole nother rabbit hole um all right last question we ask everyone uh something beautiful useful somewhat magical maybe uh that um people may or may not know about you got something for us um well about seven or eight years ago i started to build uh, design and build tube amplifiers. That's vacuum tube amplifiers, as in 
the sort of stereo equipment that was popular in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and into the 60s when the transistor finally took over and solid state amps took over. So I find these things to be absolutely magical. If you you, you get a, um, a really well set up tube amp, um, vacuum tube amp, and, and a couple of nice speakers and um, a good um, recording, and you have yourself a time machine. Mm. You can you can get transported back to that moment in time. You can be there. What, and so, give me a little bit. So is this is you listen to. This is just for listening to music. It's yes, listening. just okay. for listening to music. And what's what's your go to style? Oh, I listen. I, I'm an incredibly eclectic uh, music listener, but um, I probably listen to more jazz than anything else. Yeah, I, I think I remember that about you. Um, who's who's your favorite or, or best best album best best artist? Do you have a, a go to? Uh, I don't. You know, I I really love John Coltrane. Okay. Um, this, is com- this is coming from someone who is somewhat of a. Uh, I've I've just never gotten into jazz. Not gotten into. Never really spent the time to really uh, explore. So but I, I don't know what a good starting point. I don't know what the. But I love world music too. Yeah. I mean, I listen to a huge amount of world music. There's a sort of music from the Rajasthan de- uh, deserts in, in in northern India called Kwali music. It's devotional music um, with uh, you know f- six, seven, eight people sit down and you know they have a couple of drums and they have these beautiful little um, hand organs that they use and. It, it's just absolutely transcendent music. Um, so, is, 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 so if we come to your office, will we find you blasting this in the background? <laughs> you, you won't find it blasting in the background, but you will find it playing in the background. <laughs> That's great. You know, I go through cycles on that. There's times when I'll be listening to music almost throughout the day, but I feel like it's it's very uh, it's very cyclical for me. I, I didn't go months without doing it. I need I need to start plugging some in. That Spotify has a pretty decent. Um, random called Discover Weekly that they look at. Ah, music yes, I know and, about this. And, and it's pretty good. I mean, I, I think I need to update some of my music because it ends up giving me the same sort of stuff all the time. But um, I think that's a pretty good resource. Do you, uh, so, so I have a shorter musical mm-hmm. cycle than, than you. Mm-hmm. I go in and out, you know, listening to music on a much shorter term. Mm-hmm. Like I'll listen for a few hours and then I, mm-hmm. I have to think. And, 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 and what, um, what, what's a go-to resource if someone wanted to build their own you say vacuum tube amp? Is that how you describe it? Yeah, there's a a, a very popular um, board, um, you know, uh, internet uh, message board called DIY Do It Yourself Audio, hmm. and it's um, filled full of people. And so, can you can you can you buy like is, can you use the stuff you can buy from like Crutchfield, or is it much more like you a can you, oh, boutique-y? You, today you can you. 15 years ago, you really couldn't buy tube amps. Um, they, they were very rare specialty items, but they become they become really popular again. So today, um, any any decent um, um, hi-fi store will will have um, a selection of tube amps. In, Just not in Radio stock. Shack anymore, right? Uh, not Radio Shack anymore. <laughs> the question is, where do you get the tubes? That, or that's the question everybody asks. And and tube manufacturers are starting up again. The the key was is that Russia used tubes in their technology much, much later into the game. Mm-hmm. Um, even, you know, like the middle-range MiG fighters had tubes in them. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they kept tube factories running far later into history than, um, than um, you know, the West. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there have been some vacuum tube resources maintained. Um, now um, China is... is becoming a vacuum tube manufacturer and there's a new vacuum tube factory in Germany now. Hmm. What uh where, where are your travels taking you next? Are you are you here for a little bit? Are you uh getting out of the rain going somewhere? Next I'm going to Japan. I'm going to visit a couple of the southern islands. I want to kind of get away from it there's, for a little while. There's one of the southern islands that I've seen photos of and it looks like a Caribbean island. It's unbelievably beautiful. I, I've spent a, a handful of trips to Japan, but it's been mostly in the New York, ski, uh, New York, in the north, skiing on the mainland and then up in Hokkaido, but have never gone south. And um, one of those southern islands looks absolutely gorgeous. I can't remember the name of it off my head. So we'll have to download later and see what <laughs> see what you thought about it. Um, anywhere else? Is that the main, main for 2017? No, no, no. That's my next trip. Um, after that... Um 
It'll probably be back to your land in the middle of the year. Um, well, good. Go kick up the animal spirits. We we are are bullish on European equities, so in particular Eastern Europe. So, but my big trip from last year was Tasmania, which I recommend highly to anybody. I was, it was fantastic. Good wine, good wine, nice people, beautiful place, clean. I, I almost I, hopped over there. Was down in Melbourne and Torquay for an investment conference. Just take and the ferry. Was I was either gonna I was either gonna take that road towards Adeline and uh-huh. murder the pronunciation, or go to Tasmania. And I think they even have some fly fishing in Tasmania. I may get that wrong. Oh no, they have a lot of fly fishing. And so now I'm now I'm having a little bit of of regret that I didn't go. But I I, I travel. I kind of go. I travel a fair amount. That I was finally like, you know what? I'm just going to set up shop in a city for a few days, relax. And so I just kind of hung out in Melbourne and pretended like I was a local, and just kind of went to the coffee shop, went to join the local gym, and worked. But the funny thing about a lot of Australia is a very similar vibe to California. And um, I, I, I Tasmania I think is even more remote than most of the places. Tasmania is actually pretty remote, but the key is that it's it's relatively unpopulated. Mm-hmm. The, the population density is very low, so people aren't frenetic. You know, they, they they don't have that big city vibe to them at all. They're they're warm and welcoming, and they they, they live in a sort of you know or reasonable life pace and mm-hmm. such like that. Good. The food's good. The 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 scenery is extraordinary. Yeah. Um, oh, so. All right. Well, on the to do and pristine to do list, um, John. I. Thanks so much for coming by today. I don't want to um, take up any more time. Where can people go? They want to find more information. Sort of go-to site is BollingerBands.com. Mm-hmm. Um, has links to everything else that we have. If you're interested in Bollinger Band analytics, the, the go-to site is BBands.com, B-B-A-N-D-S.com. Um, and, of course, on Twitter, BBands talking about bitcoin and why call (laughs) (laughs) look thanks so much for coming out today podcast listeners we'll post all the show notes with links to many of these esoteric books vacuum tube amplifiers and everything else uh, at medfaber.com forward slash podcast you can always find the show notes um, and and links there as well as uh, subscribe to the show on itunes stitcher overcast my favorite listening app called castro thanks for listening friends and good investing (laughs) 